Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we are joined by Megan Hiska. Megan is a assistant professor in the philosophy department at Northwestern University. Her research concerns the way that conversations are organized into topics, i.e. discourse level information structure, and how an understanding of this phenomenon provides new tools for studying things like partisanship, polarization, and propaganda via linguistic data. Megan received her PhD from the University of Texas at Austin in the summer of 2018, and her doctoral dissertation applies formal modes of discourse structure to mass public discourses. When she's not engaged in research and teaching, she's consuming politics, policy, and poetry, or running, climbing, and training in martial arts. So welcome to the program, Megan. Thanks very much, Vincent. Nice to be with you. What kind of, if you don't mind me starting off right away, what kind of martial arts do you train in? Ah, so you're catching me out a little bit because during the pandemic, that's obviously fallen apart. Um, but historically, when I was in grad school, I was like at the Krav Maga gym every night of the week. And then when I moved to Chicago to start work, I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a while. And I'm looking forward to getting back to that once we can be uh, near people again. Right on. I agree. Yeah, yeah, Sergio and I are big fans of BJJ. So oh, yeah, that, that's cool. cool to hear. Let's start off with a little bit of background. If you wouldn't mind, kind of tell us where you're from, how you ended up teaching in Chicago and, and mm-hmm. why philosophy. Yeah. So I am Canadian. I grew up near Vancouver, British Columbia. And um, I guess like, I don't know how long this story should be, but I, I, I was a sort of person when I went to college, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I kind of didn't really know. I don't think I knew what philosophy was. I think I thought I was going to be like a lawyer or a reporter or something. But I was really uh, preoccupied with like poetry, actually, when I was an undergrad. And that got me interested in like how language works at a kind of nuts and bolts level. And uh, the long story short is that I ended up going to graduate school to do the philosophy of language um, at the University of Texas at Austin. And then at some point in my graduate career, my interest in language took a pretty sharp pivot towards an interest in how language and politics work together. Um, And then once I graduated, I got the job here at Northwestern. And that's what I've been teaching about and researching ever since. Right on. Let's move on to your article. So specifically today, we're talking about a piece uh, that you wrote called Propaganda, Irrationality, and Group Agency. Mm -hmm. So first, you state that propaganda is sort of, in a very basic way, an attempt to change the world, but saying so isn't enough, that this isn't a full theory. Um, You talk about sort of what exactly propaganda hopes to change, and you're making a big claim in the piece, namely that the characteristic effect of propaganda is not at the level of the individual but at the level of like group agency landscape, as you would call it. Um, So before we get into the details of the piece, uh, what spurred it and why this topic and why now? Yeah. So I think like a lot of people, um, I might have started thinking a bit more about what propaganda was fundamentally in like 2015, 2016, for obvious reasons. Um, In my field in philosophy, this book, How Propaganda Works by the philosopher Jason Stanley came out in 2015, which was Uh, well-timed on Jason's part because the term propaganda as a term of kind of like political critique, right? A term that you use to say that something's going wrong procedurally in like political communication or something like that came into like extremely prominent usage around like prior to and and after Trump's election, right? And I'm thinking particularly in like mainstream center-left news sources, right? The idea that like in addition to what you know, the center left took to be substantively wrong with Trumpian politics, that they were also um, plagued by by propaganda, by these kind of like procedural um, ills. That's something that I started thinking about. And what I noticed is that a lot of people, when they talked about propaganda, seemed to assume that what propaganda was is an instance of creating um, a, a certain kind of belief in people that propaganda incited people to irrationality, perhaps. And the more that I thought about that, the more sort of dissatisfied I was with that as an account. Um, And so as you mentioned in this piece, I kind of talk about what I take to be the problems with the idea that propaganda characteristically makes people irrational and what I think is a a better account of propaganda, where it, uh, what it it, uh, characteristically does is make possible uh, group agency or destroy group agency, but it functions at the group level. Yeah, let's let's talk about this. So you have, um, I'm I'm gonna probably repeat some of the things you mentioned just to just yeah, to stay please. on track. Um, so you argue that the understanding of propaganda simply as creating false beliefs or irrational beliefs is insufficient. Yeah, that's right. um, 
let's start with the first take, the notion that propaganda seeks to create false beliefs. Um, why do you sort of object to this formulation specifically? And then you give the example, which works great for us as we're community organizers here, uh, the example of a union uh, pamphleting effort on behalf yeah. of management, which was which is really good for us because this will, I think, resonate with the people who will be listening to this. Yeah. Right. So like, let's use the union pamphleting example, right? So like if, uh, you know, employees at a, at a workplace want to unionize and you've got the super anti-union management and maybe they bring in professional union busters. And one of the things that they do uh, is they hand out pamphlets that say, look, here are similar workplaces where attempts at unionization have resulted in uh, folks losing their jobs and like the jobs being like, like exported or something like that all of that information could be true, right? Like these things do unfortunately happen to people who are trying to organize in their workplaces. I don't think the fact that that information is true stands in the way of those pamphlets counting as anti-union propaganda. And so clearly we've got some cases where the information is true, but it's still propaganda. So propaganda can't just be falsehoods. Right. And the, let me, let me back up a little bit. So that management is trying to sort of induce an inaction um, that right. it doesn't have to change. And if you accept that, if I'm reading this correctly without going back to the notes, if you accept this sort of what you call the IC, the irrationality condition as like the, the foundation for understanding propaganda, that something like a union pa pamphleting effort uh, doesn't fit. That's right. If you, if you think that it's a necessary condition on something counting as propaganda, that it, it encourage people to be more irrational, then yeah, this management's pamphleting effort doesn't count. And I think that's, that's kind of wrong. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about a class of propaganda that you call hard propaganda, which also yeah. doesn't fit this model. So here you use an example of 20th century Syrian political life, but also sort of Chinese state propaganda as well. Can you talk yeah. about two of those examples and how they illustrate the example of uh, hard propaganda? Yeah, sure. So this term hard propaganda is often used by scholars of like authoritarian propaganda. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give these examples of how they think it functions, but I think it can be connected back to some of these instances of propaganda in like putative liberal democracies, maybe particularly in the workplace too, to tie back to our union example. So, um, you know, the, what, what scholars of authoritarian propaganda mean when they talk about hard propaganda are instances of messages that are uh, like crude, heavy-handed, preposterous, which are obviously seen through by citizens of the regime, um, which which don't plausibly actually induce persuasion, right? So, you know, if you're thinking of messaging to the effect that the regime is infallible, that it wins 95% of the vote in its sham elections, that like the leader is superhuman and exceptionally masculine and all that sort of stuff, right? It, it, what these theorists will point to is it's not that people are so brainwashed across the board that they just believe all this stuff often, right? Um, the way that this messaging functions is that a kind of flex is the way that I put it in my, in my paper, that it demonstrates how powerful the regime is. That is, they can get away with saying patently absurd stuff um, and they're not like called out on it, right? And so what I'm thinking of um, the political scientist Haifeng Huang who studies the Chinese context, what he points to, for instance, in his empirical work is that like Chinese college students who are more familiar with government propaganda aren't more satisfied with the government. That is, they don't believe the propaganda seemingly. But those who are more familiar with the government's propaganda are more likely to believe that it has a strong capacity in maintaining political order and are hence less willing to express dissent. And so that propaganda has still functioned. And the thing about it that I want to draw our attention to is that there's nothing irrational about inclining towards the belief that the regime will be hard to resist, that there are um, major consequences for dissenters. On the basis of the information that the regime can get away with saying ludicrous things um, and that they have evident control over channels of communication, right? I think it's a perfectly rational set of um, like belief forming mechanisms by these Chinese students, right? Nonetheless, clearly what's going on is an instance of regime propaganda, right? So once again, if you wanted to hold on to this idea that in order for something to be propaganda, it has to make people less rational, you'd have to exclude this case. And I think that's kind of unacceptable in a theory. How about hard propaganda in uh, so-called liberal democracies? Yeah. So I think I mean, if we go back to the, like the anti-union efforts that we mentioned a moment ago, right? Um, not only is the information that the, uh, the employer or the management or like the would be um, like union besting firm giving, not only is it false, 
um, sorry, we're not allowed to say it not false. Um, it's quite true, for instance, that like some unionization efforts do result in uh, job loss and things like that. But moreover, the effect that these things can create in like would be unionizers, would be workplace organizers, that, you know, like the stakes that trying to unionize are hard, are, are high, um, that there is a real danger to them and to their, um, to their comrades in the workplace when they try to do this. I think it's perfectly rational for them to form those beliefs on the basis of this information, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think the workplace shows, the workplace being one of these sort of like least democratized um, places in our putative liberal democracies, right? Shows that something like this kind of propaganda um, is very much present here as well as in authoritarian contexts. You might say that the workplace and is an authoritarian context. Yeah, and, and it's sort of the way that propaganda would function to... How would we say this? There's a sort of underlying assumption that our free market capitalism is like this very democratic, rational process mm -hmm. or system, series of systems and relationships. Um, and we often don't even talk about democracy in the workplace. Yeah. Like this in and of itself is sort of a, it's a different, how would you say, does it fit into, like how would you understand how we don't talk about democracy within the workplace? Hmm, yeah. So I think it's probably the result of a longstanding propaganda campaign of its own variety, right? That sure. we think of democracy as something that appropriately extends to certain like electoral contexts, but not to the workplace. Mm -hmm. And then even in the electoral context, not broadening maybe what our absolutely. concept of democracy might be. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Okay. How about the concept of the propaganda of the deed? Uh, can you talk a little bit about where this idea originated and how does it sort of further disprove the necessity of the irrationality condition? Yeah, that's right. So some folks, maybe some like folks on the left, um, will be familiar with this idea of propaganda par la fait or propaganda of the deed. Um, and it's associated with like 19th century insurrectionary anarchists. So um, think, for instance, uh, like uh, Kropotkin and folks like that. And when these folks were talking about propaganda of the deed, they were thinking like acts of insurrection against the state or against industrial elites. So like assassinations and bombings and stuff like that, right? And the idea is that um, the accomplishment of these kinds of acts was comprehended not just as doing like immediate damage to the state or to industry, but as an article of evidence concerning like the ruling class's fallibility and the power of the working class. And so once again, what I want to point to is that it seems like perfectly rational to incline towards the belief on the basis of an assassination or a bombing or whatever, um, that the perpetrators in their political movement have the ability to see their ends achieved, right? Um, it doesn't seem like it's, a, it's a evidence of some kind of irrationality to take it that way. But if you want to take these folks at their word and count propaganda of the deed as indeed an instance of propaganda, well, it looks like then you, you can't hold on to the irrationality condition of propaganda. Some propaganda works on us in a way that is perfectly consistent with our being, um, with our being rational. How about those who would perpetrate, say, propaganda of the deed? In other words, I do have anarchist friends who believe in these sort of uh, tactics and approaches, and 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 I would probably argue with them that they are sometimes being irrational uh, to assume that by performing such an act that they will have this sort of desired outcome. Is that wrong to think that? I don't think I'm saying anything one way or the other about whether it's, it's irrational on the perpetrator's part to, sure. uh, to, to blow shit up. Um, I, I don't want to. Yeah. And I'm not trying to get my... you in trouble or fired by the way. So <laughs> I, I just, yeah. Yeah, no worries. I think what I would say is just um, regardless of whether or not you think that like blowing shit up is though is like the right form of political practice, I think that the message that those um, actions instill in their target audience does not require their target audience to be irrational themselves in order to kind of uptake that message. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Thank you for the clarification. So you also mentioned that when it comes to forming beliefs about what the future may bring, a huge range of facts about the past will count as among the set of salient considerations. And so a huge range of messages serving a huge range of political goals will be compatible with rational reflection. Can you expand a little bit about what you meant there? Yeah. 
So what, what I think is if we look at a lot of the examples that I just gave, um, the case of like Chinese state propaganda, the case of um, propaganda of the deed, and the case of like anti-union propaganda in the workplace, what all of those instances have in common is that they concern the viability of some kind of future political formation, right? The, the viability of a union forming, the viability of the working class seizing power from the, the ruling class in a certain way, the viability of um, dissident groups count, countering a, an authoritarian regime, all that kind of thing, right? And I think that, as you just noted in the passage that you read, I think that there's a lot of information that's going to be relevant to the viability of um, a future political formation that you might be thinking of forming, right? And that the fact that that information um, is going to be relevant to you means that being influenced on the basis of that information it just doesn't look irrational, right? It, it does look like that information is exactly the kind of thing you should be taking up as evidence uh, one way or another concerning the viability of that political formation you have in mind. And so because there's this huge range of information um, that's going to be relevant to that sort of decision making about what sort of politics to participate in, uh, I think that the irrationality condition, this idea that in order for something to be propaganda, it has to incite you to irrationality, is going to miss a whole bunch of information, like the examples that I gave, which purport to show that some kind of political formation is viable or that it isn't, it's going to miss all of that stuff because all of that information is going to be the kind of stuff that it's perfectly rational to take into account. Um, but the, nonetheless, I think can intuitively have a kind of a propagandistic effect. So in your view of propaganda, um, quote, it makes room for a wide variety of cases, including those explicitly orientated toward future group formation possibilities. Yeah. Uh, unquote. So in your view, propaganda may very well incite people to irrationality and bias, but it may also, quote, uh, frequently act upon their desires. But for you, uh, none of these individual level characteristics are defining features of propaganda. The primary characteristic of propaganda, in your view, uh, can only exist at the level of the group and not so much in its formation, but in its agency. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if I can just like be clear about this, I'm not yeah. saying propaganda never makes people irrational. Like surely it does sometimes, right? And there and there are other folks who I mentioned this irrational belief account of propaganda, which I think is very commonplace. I teach a seminar on propaganda to first year students at Northwestern, and I think that's kind of the view that like 95% of them walk in the door implicitly holding about what propaganda is. But other folks will say that propaganda functions like to instill new desires in us or, or to cover over our natural desires of some kind of false consciousness. And I'm not saying that propaganda never does those things. Um, but I think that um, none of those accounts gives us a characteristic that all instances of propaganda have. None of them offer us a genuine sort of necessary condition on something counting as propaganda. Um, and so really the characteristic feature of propaganda is only going to be discernible at this like group agency level. The one thing that all propaganda has in common is that it has some bearing on the capacity of people to, to act together or uh, the, the destruction of that capacity. So in the second part of your essay, um, you, you start to work off, you start to build off of the work of Hannah Arendt, the origins of totalitarianism. Of course, Arendt there is interested with Nazi propaganda, also propaganda from the USSR, um, for rent, propaganda is but one of many political tools for control. Others include, quote, physical coercion, uh, the resulting sort of terror of such threats, indoctrination, which she distinguishes uh, from propaganda. For rent, quote, the true goal of propaganda is not persuasion, but the organization of a polity. Uh, can you talk about this difference between indoctrination and propaganda and also sort of your inspiration from Hannah Arendt? Yeah, that's right. So I think a lot of people would intuitively take indoctrination and propaganda to be kind of synonyms, right? And it's interesting in Arendt that she doesn't. So for Arendt in The Origins, which she wrote in 1951, um, indoctrination consists of the dissemination of ideological doctrine for the initiated in the movement. And she's thinking of totalitarian movements here, right? Whereas propaganda, she says, is what organizes the outside world into a movement in the first place. So propaganda is for the folks who aren't yet in the movement. 
and indoctrination is for those who already are. And she says that in the extreme case where a movement, um, well, she's thinking a totalitarian movement taking entire control of a polity, you don't need propaganda at all anymore. It's all indoctrination because everybody's sort of inside the movement, maybe whether they want to be or not. Um, and so the way that I think of this distinction for Arendt is that for her, propaganda is something like group forming speech. It creates groups, creates movements. Whereas indoctrination is group addressing speech. It presupposes that the group is already there to be addressed. Um, and maybe with a certain kind of receptivity to the information that's coming from um, like authorities within the movement. It's an interesting point for my left-wing friends who are going to be watching and listening to this. Um, I think they often skip a step and try and indoctrinate people who haven't been properly propagandized. Um, so just as an aside, I, I know that some of our friends who are activists out there, I think, often jump that step and think that they're sort of, uh, you know, propagandizing people when they're trying to indoctrinate people who don't even see themselves in that group yet. Yeah, very um, interesting. I, I definitely think this distinction is like relevant to like a comms strategy on the left, for sure. Yes, hu hugely so. I guess I didn't know, this is um, just a, a side reflection, but I didn't know what to expect when I had pulled up the piece that you had sent me. And of course, because of the work we do outside of the podcast, which is largely community organizing based work, I found, of course, the this piece to be so relevant to what we're doing. So like, I can't even, you know, thank you enough for writing something that is not only interesting, but something that's very applicable and makes us think about the work that we're doing. Um, so anyway, thank you for that. But the... Um, I, w I wanted to note also, you said that even in the public's relation industry, I found this super interesting, that the commonly understood to target sort of individuals' needs and desires, you know, how do we get people to buy this or how do we get them to, to purchase this new good or, or service, um, but in the end that they're actually forming, and this is building off of Arendt's point, that it's sort of forming a polity conducive for corporate-run society. So I know this is more of a point of clarification, but again, propaganda is sort of for, like building this group structure or this group identity that can then function within a very specific political economic context. Um, that yeah. it's not just about the individual buying the new Cadillac or whatever, but getting a, a whole sort of society or groups of people to function within that system of consumer capitalism. That's right. And, and insofar as I think the way that I think of propaganda is, um, yeah, fits with that, what, fits with that description that you just gave, I'm drawing on something I'll just give a bit, little bit of a shout out to, which is Corey Wimberly, who's another philosopher writing about propaganda today. Great recent book called How Propaganda Became Public Relations, which is sort of uh, like a genealogical account of public relations as this phenomenon of professionalized propaganda production emerging in the early 20th century out of this particular set of corporate concerns around overcoming the threat of a powerful labor movement and government regulation. And stuff like that. So it's definitely with um, some of Corey's work about uh, the genesis of public relations as a profession that I am thinking about uh, propaganda. And I think um, the reason I think that Wimberley's work is so good is because I think it really makes the case that the profession of public relations is sort of deeply like illiberal and anti-democratic in its foundational suppositions and provides a lot for folks on the left to consider about what our mass communication can work our mass communication work can look like without adopting some of these suppositions of a profession that's like really structurally at odds with left goals. Can you expand a little bit more on what you mean by that? In other words, how would we, what, how do you view that in the ways that we could potentially use this without replicating structures that are, you know, the, the antithesis of what we'd like to create in society? Yeah. So I don't pretend that I have all the answers here, but one thing that I'm thinking about when I say this is that, um, again, I want to, mentioned this is like Wimberley's thinking um, that I've been influenced by, that it, it really seems like these initial public relations professionals early in the 20th century, they were in turn deeply influenced by what were called crowd psychologists in the, in the late 19th century. And these folks were like deeply reactionary. So they were just deeply alarmed by democracy in general. Uh, these are folks like Gustave Le Bon, um, a French crowd psychologist. And what Le Bon would say, for instance, is that you know, when people join into groups, the group um, will always be sort of stupider, less rational than even the averaging of people in that group. There's sort of like a deep suspicion of groups of people of democracy. Um, and this idea that now that you don't have a monarch around to be um, elevating their kind of elite wisdom over the opinion of the crowd, 
the crowd needs to be managed. Um, and I think as leftists, we think that like our theory of power um, and our theory of, well, yeah, I'll say our theory of power certainly says that the power rests with the people, right? Um, and that the people are not too stupid to govern themselves, right? Yeah. So that's the kind of supposition that I want to make sure that we keep in mind as a supposition that we don't share with, I think, public relations as a, um, as a profession. And that we understand how when we're trying to engage in mass communication, maybe public relations experts take it that they're in communication with like a... Um, a deeply sort of irrational group of people who can't govern themselves, but we don't think that. So let's govern ourselves accordingly. Right. That's a great point. And you make a very simple point, which is important, but it's also, we sort of have a saying here at the community space that, you know, you can't fight city hall alone. Um, Not that you can't fight city hall. And you're making the same sort of argument when you say that, you know, groups can do things that individuals can't. And for me, this is like terribly important because as an organizer, uh, as a sort of part-time propagandist, uh, you know, our primary goal is getting people to understand their like collective group agency and the kind of power that they have within that. And that also within those groups, people change and learn in like really dramatic and worthwhile ways. And so the point you're making about like this sort of traditional classical liberal view that like the epitome of like the rational person is like the individual Uh, up in the tower or like isolated from society, like, and that that's the best way that they could process the world and and information. Is is that correct? Is that sort of part of what you're getting to? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, um, what I'm thinking of here is, is deeply connected to the idea that I think like participation in groups can be transformative in all sorts of ways. I'm thinking of like, um, Jane McAlevey, uh, who I really admire uh, her work on like organizing. Um, She's the best. Yeah, she's the best. Um, I'm thinking of like, she says somewhere in no shortcuts that like people participate to the degree that they understand, but they also understand to the degree that they participate. And this is just like a, a nice recapitulation of like an, an old idea, like a Marxist and pre-Marxist idea that um, participation in mass movements, it can be like transformative in all sorts of ways to the way that we understand ourselves and to what we understand our goals to be um, and to like our political horizons. And to me, this is a really important point to make in this context of neoliberalism where people are extremely alienated and isolated right now. I mean, particularly even in this like, deeper context of, of COVID, uh, that mm-hmm. people are so isolated that like this, to get people, and I, I think it's primarily best done through action. Um, so one of the points that McLevy would make and one of the points I would make through experience is that, yeah, this is best done through like actively engaging people in a campaign or a project where they could start to see themselves in connection with other people to like collectively develop those ideas that like just conceptually it isn't enough a lot of times for people to just make that to like understand that we can collectively do things that we can as an individual. It's like really important for people to see that in action. That seems exactly right to me. And I actually think just to, to connect this one more time to my, my sort of position vis-a-vis propaganda, I think that when people are told, look, propaganda is, you know, constitutively involves irrationality. And when people have in their mind this idea that like the paradigm of rationality is the lone individual, not somebody participating in a group where they're subject to all sorts of um, like uh incitements to groupthink or something like that. That notion of propaganda really suggests that people should not be part of groups, right? Um, Implicitly or explicitly, or that they should be very cautious about it. Whereas I think, um, look, on my account, propaganda per se is neither good nor bad. I think I think of propaganda in the way that other folks on the left do, where we talk about our own messaging as propaganda, right? I obviously think there are good instances of propaganda. But the kind of... um, proofing of oneself against propaganda in its negative instances that we should engage in doesn't involve looking for instances of irrationality. I mean, maybe irrationality is still bad for all that I say that can still be the case, but that um, what really should help you discriminate between types of propaganda that you, you want to sort of like have an effect on you and those that don't is the kind of structure of the group that you're being invited into. If this is an instance of what I call group forming propaganda, right? Is this a kind of group that is um, going to invite you into some sort of democratic deliberation about how you will collectively strategize and act? Or is it one that's going to be like structurally insensitive to your needs and desires and just want you to um, to comply with some higher authority or something like that? That's the thing to have in mind. But even considering that much requires you to 
I think as I'm paraphrasing the way that you put it, Vincent, to, to think of yourself as part of a larger group and what you could do in such a larger group. Now, let me, there's a section here where I think I might've not understood this as well as I probably could have. So I'm going to ask for, for some clarification here. There's a section before we toward a, before, I'm sorry, we get toward the end of your piece where you sort of talk about how propaganda can be used in a way to either like encourage people to detach from groups or to encourage them to get into groups. In other words, that like certain forms of propaganda, if they create too much alienation, can create like these volatile individuals um, who might not be useful to the propagandists. Yeah, that's sort of an Arendtian point. So like Arendt thinks that totalitarianism was able to take hold uh, in Germany in the way that it was because you had these like highly atomized individuals. They were atomized, they were isolated by like economic circumstance and like political and cultural forces as well. And, and the thought here is just that if you're a person who wants to exert some kind of political control over people um, and you think that the indiv- and you think sort of that human beings are like naturally social, that is you, you sort of think that people want to belong to groups, it might in some cases be in your interest to try to dissolve groups that people are in that are kind of um, in opposition to your interests, right? If you're like a, a major corporation dissolving unions and things like that, right? It's probably in your like immediate economic interests. But perhaps what you want to do is to give people an alternative group to be invited into. Um, and in fact, this is something that Wimberley uh, emphasizes to a much greater degree than I do. The, Wimberley, I think, sort of talks as though group agency is never destroyed. It's always sort of recycled. Like people are like, you never get rid of group agency. You just absorb or co-opt a group into some other sort of project. I, I'm not sure that I'm, I totally believe that. I, I think that some political projects really just do involve disorganizing people. Um, but I, I agree with Wimberley insofar as I think it's very common that political organization gets co-opted to different to different ends. And that can be both a negative phenomenon and a positive one, depending on. Yeah, I'm thinking of Kathleen Ballou's work. I just finished rereading her book, Bring the War Home. It's like a history of the white power movement. She's a historian at the University of Chicago. Excellent, excellent book, in my opinion, maybe the most important book people can read right now. Um, and I'm thinking about the ways in which the right, broadly speaking, has used these different groups um, sometimes sort of bringing them under the flag of the Republican Party, but then also allowing these groups to sort of atomize and fragment. Here I'm thinking neo-Nazis, everything from the Proud Boys to white power organizations to the Order to the Klan. Um, And that it's like they've created this sort of Frankenstein that they're trying to control, um, but that they've sort of lost control with. And here I'm thinking of like the corollary with U.S. foreign policy, um, where we, of course, arm all sorts of reactionary groups, uh, hoping that we can use them for our own ends. And then of course, sort of losing control of these, of these groups, trying to like reform them through hard power, but also propaganda to like, you know, make them more malleable for us, us interests. And I'm thinking about like the same thing here at home domestically. And I'm wondering sort of how you process what you just said, um, with like how we're thinking about battling the right, with some of Trump's base, knowing it's not a homogenous entity and all the rest. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that there are, are political circumstances that are well understood in terms of like an attempt to co-opt various um, group agencies into sort of one unifying coalition um, attempts that go awry. Like you said, I feel at this moment, I don't know what you Vincent, I feel like I do not, I sort of don't know what's going on. I feel like my analysis of the, the current American right is very much in flux and I wouldn't want to give a view that I, um, that I think I'm very much still developing in, in, in light of the events of the last couple of weeks. I understand that. And I, I would, I, I hate to do this again because I'm, I'm not working for her, but I, I think she, her book, uh, bring the war home is, is as important as it gets and really draws out this history. Um, and as a veteran, of course, I'm interested because, um, veterans played su- such a significant role in these different waves, as she points, all the way from the Civil War, veterans coming home, forming the first KKK after World War One, veterans coming home, the next iteration of the KKK post-World War II, all the way through the post-Vietnam era. Okay, mm-hmm. so toward the end of your piece, uh, you stop to ask the question, mustn't any attempt to shape group action proceed by influencing the beliefs of the individuals in the group? Unquote. So namely that there's nothing distinctive about the beliefs that propaganda creates in order to influence group action. 
Um, what is characteristic, and this is somewhat of a summary of things you've said, is a propaganda is the creation of those individual beliefs, which, when acted upon by the individual at the same time uh, that certain other individuals engage in certain other actions, constitute the execution or absence of group action. So sort of a definition, clearly, for people of like what group agency and action would be. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to articulate there is that for folks who really can't get past this desire to talk about propaganda in terms of belief creation, look, of course, that's still going to be maybe kind of true in my account. Like, I, how do you affect group agents? Well, you affect the individuals within them, right? Yeah. You affect their beliefs and their desires and their relationships. Um, what I'm saying is that, you know, what, what's clear is that not every attempt to create a belief in somebody is, a, is an instance of propaganda, or at least, you know, the notion of propaganda would lose all meaning if that were true, right? right. So what can we say about the distinctive kind of belief or desire or what philosophers call intentional state in the individual that is characteristically created by propaganda? Well, it's whatever kind of sort of individual psychological state disposes them to uh, like contribute to or shrink back from group agency, right? Like you can't specify the individual state, I think, without giving kind of theoretical primacy to the, the group that the individual can go on to partially constitute. And, However you want to articulate my view, that kind of primacy of group action is what has to remain. So the implications of your thesis, there's sort of two major consequences here. First, um, that, quote, a new set of social operations as propaganda's next of kin um, sort of arise here, and that's organization, mobilization, and polarization rather than lying and manipulating. Do you want to touch on that before I get to the second point? Yeah, just I think... Um, as I said at the beginning, well, I said earlier when we're talking about indoctrination, there are a lot of these terms um, that we might take as like vaguely synonymous with one another. And I think people, uh, again, I'm going to allude to my students in this seminar, often take propaganda and manipulation to be almost synonyms. But I think on my view that that doesn't come out being quite the case, because if you think about lying and manipulation, these are effects that you have at the level of the individual. And as I've said, propaganda, although it affects groups through individuals, its characteristic effect is at the level of the group. And so we should kind of assimilate propaganda to this category of other political phenomena that we commonly understand to function at the level of the group. And that's things like organizing people and mobilizing people, right? It's not, it's not in the first place an individual who gets um, organized, um, right? You can't talk about getting organized maybe except with a reference to a larger group that they're coming to be part of. Um, and I think this kind of maybe makes it clearer how, um, well, yeah, how, how you might um, move, how, how one might move forward in thinking about propaganda profitably is by drawing further connections to some of these other phenomena like uh, organization, mobilization, and polarization. I think I'll just flag that the polarization one is particularly interesting to me because similar to propaganda, people will often talk about polarization as though it constitutively involves people being irrational, that is that they're driven to some sort of like um, extreme set of beliefs or extreme set of emotions by irrationality. But there's a lot of really interesting um, work in political science and in epistemology, that's subfield of philosophy that studies sort of knowledge creation, um, that just shows that it's just not clear at all that you need to be irrational in order to become polarized, that perfectly rational individuals can become polarized. So I think that there's like a, a common set of issues around polarization and propaganda. Or that polarization is inherently bad. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I mean, this, yeah. it seems to me that this is something that we constantly run into um, when doing our work is like, or even just in like the broader political discourse in the U.S. right now, it's like, oh my God, we're so polarized. We've never been this polarized. This talk of unity from Joe Biden and so on, it's like, you. Um, it seems to me that polarization in the context of like massive inequality and racial injustice is a good thing, that we want to draw a contrast and create antagonisms around issues that we find uh, either very important or situations that we find completely unacceptable. Yeah, that sounds exactly right to me. And I think it's it's very clear that some of this discourse around polarization functions itself as a kind of propaganda because it carries this implicit suggestion that defaulting toward the center would be the, the reasonable or rational thing to do. Or, or to your point, that if you were to join together in a group to say further that goal of polarization, that it's like sort of driving people away from that, making them think like, I don't want to be part of the polarization. So if part of the polarization means me joining with other people and like 
you know, promoting my own interests or our own interests that like that too is feeding into this sense of polarization. And I don't want to do that because it's deemed as being inherently bad. Yeah, exactly right. So I think, yeah, that's exactly right. Is what you're, you're connecting this to is this worry uh, that we had about propaganda in the first place, that a certain way of thinking about these phenomena suggests that people ought not join together in groups. And that um, certainly is something that like folks on the left should dispense with. Yeah, I am. Look, I, well, let me actually, I'll, I'll finish this just because I want to make sure I get through all of these. There's only one more question I have specifically from this article. Um <laughs> That, yeah, it's sort of, I'm sorry, because this is sort of a summary of what we had also said, which is like the critique of classical liberalism, positing that, you know, isolated individuals are sort of the model of of rationality. So in your view, individuals should ask themselves when encouraged by propaganda, and I just want to repeat this because you said it earlier, but I think it's like a really, really important point. And again, as an organizer, this is what we want people to ask themselves if indeed they're going to engage in any group organization, Um that when encouraged by propaganda to either participate or not participate in groups, um, whether that group is hostile or structurally incapable of meeting one's demands and questions, priorities, and opinions, um, does this process or does this group draw you into a collective deliberative process uh, that resistance can't be individual? I just, I wanted to just hammer those points home because they're really, I, I think, really useful for people who are trying to organize folks. Yeah, that's exactly right. That that not all groups are are created equal structurally, and that that's that group structure that we should be scrutinizing when we're confronted with an instance of group forming propaganda. And what individuals should think about before they go in. So if they're like entering a new space and they're like, "Man, these people do not care about my opinions. There's no collectively like deliberative democratic process for me to mm-hmm. contribute to this group." Those are red flags. People should like get out as soon as possible. <laughs> in my, at least in my opinion, like, and that's even in like groups that might nominally be on the left that like if you don't perform those functions within that group setting um it's not very helpful to our cause i don't think yeah i think that's exactly right and i think um you know like obviously we might think that groups that don't involve like due democratic consultation can be dangerous in their worst cases but they can also just be ineffective i mean thinking back to the like mcalevy quote that i mentioned before right it's this idea that people people will participate when they sort of understand the strategy of the group, but that they'll also understand the strategy to the group that they, to, sorry, to the degree that they participate in informing it, right? Um, that like democratic deliberation among um, like them, all the members of an organization is what makes that organization effective in the long term. How did you, if you don't mind me asking, how did you uh, become aware of McAlevey's work? So I, I mean, I'm a member of Chicago DSA, and so I do okay. a lot of like, you know, ongoing like political education work and right stuff on. like that. Yeah. When uh, have you been politically active for most of your life, or like, what has your political involvement been like? So, I mean, I grew up in like a working class household where my I grew up in Canada, as I mentioned, where my mom at least came from like an extremely like an extremely union family, um, and my mom was like a member of the public service and um, public employees union, um, and. It was definitely, without it being the case, I think that I perceived my parents as very political. It was definitely the case that like, you know, like bringing cookies to the teachers when they were on picket lines and stuff like that was like a big part of the ethos that I grew up in. Um, I, I think I was a bit of like, I don't know. I, like I said, when I was younger, Vincent, I was just like obsessed with like sort of poetry and aesthetics. And I'm not sure that I was really all things considered that political and individual as like a teenager and stuff. I think um, partially, I think that like, going to graduate school and the sort of like precarity involved in being like a graduate employee and stuff like that was, was in part radicalizing for me. And, and just honestly moving to the United States um, and understanding the level of precarity that exists when you don't have even the sort of like basic social welfare uh, um, provisions that you do in Canada, Canada very much not being like a socialist utopia, but um, that, that was a radicalizing thing for me. So I think that it's primarily like the last 10 years of my life that I have been more politically active. And how about now? I mean, in other words, I we interview a wide range of people from like um, friends and family to bus drivers to like famous musicians to public intellectuals to intellectuals who will never leave their bedroom unless they're going to the university. <laughs> I've always I've always personally appreciated public intellectuals, um, people who. 
I think, distill some of their ideas in a way that allows more people from the public to engage in the conversation. Um, that's not to say, like, I think oftentimes people think about it as like a sort of, uh, I think the crude way of putting it would be like dumbing down, but I don't see it that way. It's like, there, I see like infinite amount of potential in the poor and working class people who live in our area. And I, I see myself that way. Like I grew up in a household of immigrant Italian steelworkers and ironworkers who are in the union. And like, I barely graduated high school, dropped out of college uh, because I thought there was going to be a revolution during Occupy and was running around with anti-war veterans thinking we were going to overthrow Wall Street. <laughs> so I was maybe a little delusional as a young 20 something year old, but um, you know, I, and throughout the years though, like I've always been very interested in like reading and knowledge and learning and like just trying to understand concepts that I'm never going to get trained to understand and that it's been really helpful to have people either like yourself or others um, who are I think willing to sit down outside of the university institution like outside of that setting and and like I don't know inject and cultivate and, and some of these ideas like into uh, you know, ordinary people who are never going to get the chance. Like we know people who will never in a million years get a chance to take like a course in philosophy, but they're like philosophers themselves. Like they are philosophizing all the time about life and love and desires and death and all of these things. And it just, it drives me nuts. I mean, one of the things is just like my short rant for the day. And that is like one of the things that drives me nuts about this system is that it is, it wastes so much talent and, and, there's so many people out there that have so much to offer that it like breaks my heart and pisses me off to no end that like we know a ton of people who are just never going to get a chance to explore these things in a way that like really makes them feel empowered and in a way where they feel like, hey, my my voice, like what I'm saying, this means something, you know, and that there's like all this like sort of, you know, self-deprecating humor and sort of like all the things that happen in like a rust belt town that's been devastated by deindustrialization and drug abuse and all the rest, the war on drugs and incarceration. And I, I guess, yeah, that's not a question, but just like kind of wondering what you think about those sort of things or if those are things that you reflect on. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, I think that from my first experiences with propaganda, with, sorry, propaganda, with philosophy <laughs> when I was a teenager, um, I, it was clear to me that philosophy had a kind of like deeply liberatory potential. And I continue to think that in its best, um, best manifestations, it has that. And so I share with you this real worry that the humanities in general and, you know, philosophy in particular, which I think about because I'm in the profession, um, that it isn't functioning properly when it functions in this highly insular and like self-referential way, right? Um, in many ways, the incentives that the academy sets up for like professional academics, right? Like encourages that self-referentialness, like you need to publish in journals and you in turn are able to publish in those elite journals when you're referencing other things that are already published in those elite journals, right? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so like, it's hard to get around those incentives. But at the same time, I think, look, there is a sort of like, I think there's a sort of crisis for the humanities that's like ongoing and that COVID might have um, might have accelerated where I think in a lot of major institutions right now, the kind of model for the kind of value that a discipline brings comes from uh, the sciences or maybe from the business school, right? This idea either that the work that's being done by profession like furthers technological advances or it makes somebody money and look, the humanities don't do that normally, right? And so there's these kind of like absurd and humiliating, I think, attempts to say like, well, look, if you take a philosophy degree, you are more likely to be hired by Google. You see lots of like news sources like these that are sometimes widely shared by philosophers to encourage more people to be majors in their undergraduate, right? But like the true promise of philosophy and of the humanities is of this kind of like liberatory variety that I think you and I uh, share the, the view that it, that it has. And the real kind of like vindicate what should vindicate the humanities is what they can bring to a broader public. So I think we're very far from a, a set of academic institutions and incentives, which make that, I don't know, which make that easy, which make that thrive. But I kind of share, share that as a vision with you and bringing philosophy more places is something we should all be doing. Do you do that, say, with regard to like the DSA chapter? And, and this is like a two-part question. One would be, how have you 
or are you still trying to figure out sort of how to take your discipline and apply it to some of maybe say your political work or activism? And then the second part to that question would be, have you thought about writing or have you written for like more sort of what you'd say? Yeah. Non-academic, like mainstream websites, journals, magazines, et cetera. Yeah. So I feel like at this point in my life as like a developing organizer and stuff, the, the influence has been unidirectional in the sense that I feel like learning from my comrades about organizing has had a huge effect on what I do in my professional life as an academic. Uh, it's not the case that I think I bring much of my like work as a theoretician to DSA. So for instance, shout out to Chicago DSA. We have a fantastic political education program, tons and tons of events um, that make it really easy for our like 3000 plus members now to be reading important works of philosophy um, and, you know, theory, not just philosophy, theory broadly, economics, lots of things. Um, and I've learned a huge amount through those opportunities. I um, I think you're probably right that in the future, that like a, a, a more kind of like bi-directional kind of synthesis of these parts of our life makes sense. But at the moment, I'm just very grateful for the comrades I have in the CDSA uh, who have taught me a lot about what it means to be an organizer. And you are like directly reflecting what is contained within your article because that group has had an impact obviously on you and the work that you're doing in a positive way. So Yes, absolutely. It's awesome that you're in the DSA. We just started a chapter here in Northwest Indiana. Um, we have had a local organization that's existed for some time that we've been doing community work with. But of course, the DSA allows us to connect with people throughout the state, region, and the country, which is really helpful for people living here as well to see their local struggles connected to national struggles and to see themselves and their struggles, you know, reflected by people across the country has really helped. So, hey, Fantastic. thank you so much. I know we've taken close to an hour of your time. I really appreciate it, and I do hope that we can have you back again in the future, but I, I do appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Vincent. Nice to meet you. All right, take care. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll speak to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.